This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. It's time for episode six of the Go Pack Podcast. We'll be discussing the current state of our economy with Larry Kudlow, taking a look into election integrity with Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, and we'll be hearing a message from former Speaker Newt Gingrich. Today, we're excited to welcome Larry Kudlow, host of Kudlow on Fox Business Network and formerly served as assistant to the president for economic policy and director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. Larry, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So, fun fact for our listeners, back about 20... Oh, gosh, 20 years ago or so um, when I worked in radio during my time at WABC in New York, I was a call screener for Larry. So <laughs> it's, we've, no, we've known each other a little while. Larry, what do you characterize as the main pitfalls of the Biden administration's economic approach? Everything. There's not one thing that they've done right. And they've spent all their time with their big government socialism trying to overturn the highly successful Trump economic policies, namely tax cuts, deregulation, energy independence and dominance. All of it worked beautifully. Ordinary, typical working families did extremely well. The overall economy did well. Poverty came down. Inequality came down. We left these turkeys with uh, 6% GDP growth, less than 2% inflation, $2 gasoline at the pump. And they've spent the last 18 months reversing almost everything we've done. So now we find ourselves with first half recession, 10% inflation, much higher interest rates. It's been a complete disaster. Don't forget, gas prices are under $4 a gallon today for the first time in five months. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm glad <laughs> some relief, but wake me when it hits $2. Ab- okay, absolutely. That's where we left it. So my, my point is that this group with the Green New Deal and their regulatory state and their central planning state, given all these agencies enormous power, you know, they are opposed to free market capitalism. They are in favor of this sort of woke Biden socialism. And, you know, it's really damaged the economy. I mean, that's the problem. It's a funny thing in a way, because if it would have worked, it would have worked, but it's failed. It hasn't worked. So there's a revolt going on. It's a populist revolt. It's an economic revolt. Uh, I think it's a uh, it's a working class revolt. And that's the biggest problem they have. And, they, and they're not going to get out of it. The good news here is the cavalry's coming. We'll do very well in the elections, hopefully standing on principle. By the way, Trump himself, when he's not fending off Mar-a-Lago invasions, has given a couple of very good speeches recently, gave a good one in Washington to the America First uh, conference we had. I uh, gave a pretty good one at CPAC in Dallas, and he's outlining an agenda, a predicate for the election. And the Republicans should listen very carefully and run on that because it's, you know, economic growth, closing the border, stopping the critical race theory in, in schools and education, and a much stronger foreign policy, a much stronger national security policy. So these are the things to run on. And I hope Republicans, you know, do that. I don't want, let's not be squishy. Let's just come out four square for what worked. I'm going to put aside 2024, okay? I don't know anything about that. Perhaps he'll run, perhaps he won't. That's up to him. But I'm just saying he is reviewing and articulating the very good, positive, successful policies that 
we had and contrasting that with the failures of the Biden policies. I don't want to make this any harder than it needs to be, in a sense. Go back to basics. Right. Well, speaking of President Trump, during your time in the administration, what would you say was your most memorable day or moment? And kind of the the counter to that, what would you perceive as your toughest day during the administration? Well, the most fun day I had is when I when I walked in the door. <laughs> I had well, I won't say it's the first time because I had been I had seen the president many times in 2017 when I was still working on TV. But I worked for Ronald Reagan 40 years ago, over 40 years ago. So it's kind of the first time I had an official entry. But it was a uh, first day was a great day. You know, I went up there and settled into the uh, office on the second floor, which for 25 years, all my predecessors had had used. It was great fun. I don't think I had a bad day. I mean, look, the hardest part was when the pandemic came and we had to shut everything down and you know, it interrupted the prosperity. That was a very difficult period. I was on the healthcare task force. That was a very difficult period. But again, you know, we attacked that. The president attacked all that with his common sense and his business background and developed Operation Warp Speed for the Vax. I, I never really had a bad day. I mean, the sad, probably the saddest day is when we had to leave, but that's life. And um, as I say to people, I had three good years. I was alcohol-free, drug-free, and subpoena-free for all three years. God and bless America. <laughs> and then actually, uh, I went out and actually got a job. They're actually paying me to do this stuff on Fox. <laughs> which is a wonderful thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're great at it. You're great at it. Well, you remember in the 90s, right, the GOPAC tapes, which when I joined GOPAC, the first thing that our chairman said to me was, you're going to hear a ton about the GOPAC tapes. Everybody has, they've touched somebody in some capacity, which is why we created the GOPAC podcast, which is our, our own kind of modern day riff off of the GOPAC tapes. Given you worked for... President Reagan, who is such a polarizing historical figure, what is something that you learned during your time working in in the Reagan administration that you would um, give as a, a tip or advice to Republican candidates running for office in November and those people listening that are maybe considering running for office at some point at, at whatever level of government that may be? Well, by the way, I don't think Reagan is a polarizing figure. I think Reagan has become an iconic figure. Absolutely. When you look at these uh, presidential surveys, even though they're all a bunch of left-wing historians, he's moved into the top five or six presidents. I think he's become an iconic figure, to be honest with you. You know, I was one of the original founders and supporters of GOPAC with Newt and Gay Gaines and some others. I guess it was the early, early mid-90s. I worked on the contract with America. Newt Gingrich is still a very, very dear friend of mine. I talk to him all the time. Big government socialism is Newt's phrase. In fact, Newt polled free market capitalism, which was my phrase, and big government socialism. Capitalism wins by two or three to one. And I think, you know, in terms of the second part of your question, look, people running for office or thinking about running for office should stay with the conservative principles, the limited government free market principles that have stood the test of time and have been so successful. And contrasting that when we move to the left, as we did under Obama, and as we are doing 
more so under Biden. It just hasn't worked. And I don't think people should be bashful. I, I don't think they should pull their punches. I don't think they should hedge. I think they should be very clear in their communications strategy, in their messaging to inform voters, educate and inform voters of the principles that worked and the principles that failed. I think it's that simple. And I learned that from Reagan. Reagan was a brilliant communicator, stuck to his conservative principles with that wonderful Irish self-effacing humor that he had. I love humor in politics. I myself have my own brand of wise-ass humor that I use constantly. And I think that makes it fun. But sometimes you have to call a fraud a fraud. Sometimes a lie is a lie. I don't like to personalize politics, but this Biden crowd, I mean, they just lie through their teeth. So anyway, stay with your principles, stick to your guns. That's what I, I learned that from Reagan and I've never forgotten. It. So back kind of to the current situation with the Biden administration, we're dealing with challenges of overcoming a pandemic, economic volatility, threats to world stability. What do you think should be the key actions to prioritize here and, and how can Republicans make a difference and, and course correct after November? Well, I think that we need to have our ducks in line in order to get a fast running start come November. And the good news on this is that Kevin McCarthy, who I think is a superb leader in the House, is working to put together uh, his version of a contract with America. I don't, I forget the name, but he's got a, a slightly different name. But he's worked with Newt and myself and Steve Moore and a lot of other people, all the committees in the House have been working. They'll, they'll probably put that out sometime this month, I think. So you have an agenda. So the, the trick here is, of course, A, win, but B, know what you're going to do. Don't waste time in 2023 to figure out what you're going to do. If you know it ahead of time, you can begin January 3rd right away, right away. And I think that was something that we learned 25 years ago. It's something that we had in the Trump years. We had a very good agenda between the Trump campaign in 2016 and the transition. We knew what the key points were going to be and went ahead rapidly. I think the Senate people will need to do more work on this. But I think the House people have a very good head start. And that would be my advice. I know that Rick Scott in the Senate is pushing to have an agenda, and I think Rick is correct. But again, Kevin McCarthy and uh, Steve Scalise and that gang doing a very good job. And look, that's going to include, you know, um, not only the policy issues, but it's going to include the oversight issues. I mean, what the Biden people are doing is particularly with respect to January 6th committee, this outrageous raid on Mar-a-Lago. I mean, all, they're spending all their time politicizing these big agencies, law enforcement. You know, we've seen the Justice Department. We've seen the FBI. Once again, get involved. Presidential politics. This is all about preventing Trump from being uh, from running. And it's all about stopping Republicans from taking over Congress. So that's all this is. It hasn't worked. The polling needle has not moved uh, with all these January 6th committee televised hearings. It hasn't moved one bit. And now they're, you know, they're on a fishing expedition to find documents that will somehow implicate Trump in some kind of conspiracy. It's not going to work. But I know that Jim Jordan and a bunch of others uh, are getting ready to uh, launch into oversight hearings right away to stop this politicization of 
all these key government agencies. You know, you, you really do have a deep state. You have a deep state. Mm -hmm. And the deep state is heavily populated with senior career bureaucrats who are a bunch of lefties. The FBI is a perfect example. Unfortunately, I mean, I think this stuff is very unfortunate, but it's going to have to change. And they're going to have to be able to change. Some reforms will be necessary to be able to clean out some of the uh, entrenched bureaucrats in these, you know, like the Energy Department, the EPA, Interior. All this is waged a war against fossil fuels, cause sky high energy prices, law enforcement stuff, the education stuff. This has to all be changed. So we're going to have to, you know, move back into tax cutting and move back into deregulation and move back into energy security. We're going to have to move into investigating and hopefully wiping out this deep state stuff that continues to plague Washington, D.C. I mean, it's too bad. And they're, ru they're ruining their, I mean, look, the FBI, I have no doubt the FBI, most of these FBI agents are probably good people and they're patriots, but the bureaucrats at the top are, turns out they're a bunch of left-wingers. And uh, what they did with Mar-a-Lago is an outrage, unprecedented. But it's not going to work. I mean, they impeached Trump twice. They're, this is like the third impeachment, God knows. I mean, it, it's this stuff has to stop. And I think you're going to see a coalition of Republicans, and some Democrats, and independents to make important election changes, and elections have consequences. Absolutely, they do. So my, my last question to you, kind of a, a more fun one. When Larry Kudlow is not on Fox Business and, and, and focusing on all things economic, what do you like to do for fun? For fun? Yeah. I talk to GoPack. <laughs> Amen. Believe it or not, I'm still a pretty good tennis player. I played college tennis and I'm 120 years old now, but I still play a pretty good game on the weekends. Well, Larry, thank you so much for taking taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today and to talk to all of our listeners. Appreciate it very, very much. And hopefully we can have you back maybe after Election Day and celebrate our victories in the House and the Senate. Be my great pleasure. Today, we welcome Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose to the podcast. Prior to being elected to statewide office, he served two terms in the Ohio State Senate and served in the U.S. Special Forces as a Green Beret. During his decade in uniform, he received numerous commendations and honors, including the Bronze Star. Frank, thanks for joining us today. So great to be here. As Ohio's Chief Elections Officer, tell our listeners about what exactly you oversee in the election process as the Secretary of State. Yeah, so my job is to keep Ohio's elections honest, and what that means is working with our 88 county board of elections, boards of elections around the state. It is a very decentralized uh, way that we run elections in Ohio and in many other states. And that very local administration of elections, that decentralized nature of elections, that's not a, a, a bug. That's a feature, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. And so that means uh, working with those county boards of elections, making sure that they're meeting a statewide standard, and then making sure that they have the resources they need to be successful, because ultimately, it's their job as a bipartisan team, two Democrats and two Republicans at each county board of elections, uh, to run elections for the people of that county. It also means um, helping to push us in the right direction on things like cybersecurity, We've really set a new standard in Ohio as it relates to the cybersecurity of our elections infrastructure, also holding them to standards for things like uh, maintaining accurate voter rolls. That's a constant chore, right? It's an everyday job to maintain the accuracy of our voter rolls, to make sure that deceased voters are removed from the rolls, to make sure that 
Only U.S. citizens are registered voters. In fact, just last week, I referred 11 individuals for prosecution, investigation, and potential prosecution because we found, uh, and it's a good thing that only 11 out of 8 million registered voters are, we suspect, are non-citizens, but we caught them and and we're going to, you know, they're going to face consequences for that. So those are the kind of things that we do uh, as the Secretary of State's office working with our 88 county boards of elections. During your time in the state legislature, you were named Legislator of the Year in 2016 by the Ohio Association of Election Officials in recognition of your support and commitment to improving Ohio's election process. Tell us what inspired you to champion this issue. So the interesting thing in a state legislature like Ohio's with term limits is once you develop an area of expertise or an area of interest, it sort of becomes yours. And and I became known pretty quickly as the guy that works on elections issues. It started with one that was near and dear to my heart and kind of a natural fit. And that is working to improve overseas military voting. When I was a brand new state senator in 2011, I was the only veteran in the state Senate. Now, thankfully, there are more now. Uh, But at the time, the current Secretary of State at that time, John Husted, who's now our Lieutenant Governor, wanted to improve overseas military voting. So I was kind of the natural partner on that. And uh, once I started working on elections issues, I I really enjoyed it. It it reconnected me with an experience that I had in the military where I had seen people risk their lives to cast a ballot in places like Iraq and Kosovo and And that's something you'll never forget. The power of free people to really change things by participating in elections is something that is truly remarkable and can't be taken for granted. I decided to roll up my sleeves and and really get to know the process. I started uh, shadowing boards of elections uh, on election day, going and, and, and just sort of being there and watching how they conduct their processes and then listening to them. In a bipartisan way, the Association of Elections Officials often agrees on on a lot more than they disagree on. It's, it's unfortunate sometimes uh, these issues of elections administration or election integrity get politicized, but they don't have to be. For example, one of the reasons I, I got that award is from listening to their concerns. At the time, Ohio had this thing called Golden Week. Uh, it was a, a, a bad uh, a thing that allowed people to register to vote and then vote at the same day without giving the Board of Elections any chance to actually verify that that's a legitimate address, make sure that they're um, you know, not a, a vacant lot or something like that. And, and so uh, the Democrats and Republicans that work on elections in Ohio said, hey, this is problematic. You should address that. So we were able to eliminate that golden week period. We were able to get funding for new voting equipment, uh, more secure voting equipment in Ohio. We were able to pass bills that, that do things like create this monthly process that we now carry out that remove deceased voters from the voter rolls. Listen, the Ohio Department of Health, among their responsibilities, is to certify when people are deceased. And so my idea was, why not just get that list on a monthly basis from the Department of Health and then disaggregate that to 88 county boards of elections and remove those deceased voters from the voter rolls as a routine process? Those are the kind of things that we were able to do by just listening to the concerns that Ohio's elections officials had and then putting them into action. And as a result of that, they gave me their Legislator of the Year Award uh, several years ago. You have a very impressive background, including outstanding military service. What are some habits you developed in the service that has made you a more impactful leader. Well, first of all, uh, leadership is an act of service, right? It, it's um, it's not about being elevated to a lofty position. It's about helping a team of people accomplish more, and so that starts with learning and, and listening. 
Um, and, and, and I've really tried to do that in, in my role. It, it, it means listening to our 88 county boards of elections. I, I think I was the first secretary of state to visit all 88 county boards of elections in my first year in office. And that that has made a real impact in, in listening to their concerns. Uh, but, but it also means um, some of those good practices that I learned in the military, like there's this thing called an AAR. It's an after action review. All that it means is that whenever you do a thing, you pause afterward and learn from it. And it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, a major combat operation or just planning the unit family picnic in the summer. You always do an AAR in the military. That after action review gives you the chance, while it's still fresh in your mind, to uh, say, hey, this is something that went really well. We need to keep doing this in the future. Or, hey, this this didn't go as well as we should. We want to improve it. it it's one of those moments of sort of extreme ownership where you say, hey, I didn't do as well as I could. I want to do better next time. And so we've really instituted that as a practice uh, for all of our boards of elections and the Secretary of State's office. After each election, we do that full AAR and we've learned a lot from it. Some of the other things is just bringing people together to uh, be able to respond when there are uh, when there's a lot going on. We created what we call the operations center. Some of our team members call it the war room. On election day, we have all of the subject matter experts in one place so that as things come at us quickly, we can uh, triage that information and determine what needs immediate action or or what can be pushed to the back burner. And uh, as a result of that, we've been able to solve a lot of problems on election day and make sure that even just logistical things or, or public relations related things are handled in a very quick and, and uh, sort of purposeful way. Uh, I guess one of the last things is just sort of a mentality about being prepared and having those redundancies and backup plans in place. I wrote on the dry erase board in uh, the lead up to the 2020 election, a little bit of military wisdom. And this is something that was just always sort of part of the culture that I learned in the military. And that is that you sweat in training so you don't bleed in battle. You sweat in training so you don't bleed in battle. It's a simple matter of preparation. You do the work ahead of time, and when the action starts, you're going to be ready. That mantra, that mentality that we brought really helped Ohio shine as kind of a national example. When other states fell short on Election Day in 2020, weren't able to get their results on time or had confusion or just bad logistics, Ohio was ready, and it was because we did our sweating throughout the spring and summer of 2020 so that we didn't bleed, if you will, in battle on uh, on Election Day in November of 2020. Where do you think Ohio's headed this election cycle? Well, Ohio's going to have a, another free and fair election. Uh, listen, we make it easy to vote and hard to cheat in Ohio. This shouldn't be a partisan thing. It doesn't have to be, unfortunately, particularly on the left. You know, anytime you talk about election integrity, uh, they want to accuse you of voter suppression, for example. L- listen, it's easy to vote in Ohio. We've got a month of early voting. We've got a month of absentee voting, a secure process for absentee voting where you actually have to prove your identity and then you get an absentee ballot if you want to vote from home. Uh, and we also have election day from 6.30 a.m. till 7.30 p.m. So it is undeniably easy to vote in the Buckeye State, but we also make it hard to cheat. We remove dead people from the voter rolls, as I said, on a monthly basis. We make sure that only citizens can be registered. We check IDs. We, uh, uh, you know, we verify that you are who you say you are when you vote absentee in person on election day or in person early. And uh, you know, we also follow our rules. And this is something that just should be second nature. Uh, the laws of the state of Ohio govern what I do. 
And uh, that means we enforce those laws and we don't change them at the last minute as a result of activist lawsuits. Some of the biggest problems that occurred in 2020, but also in in other elections, is when some activist group files a lawsuit just days or, or weeks before an election. And then in some cases, you know, you'll have secretaries of state that'll just settle that lawsuit, give the ACLU 30% of what they're asking for. The problem with this is twofold. First of all, it's like paying the hostage taker, right? The the hostage taker only takes more hostages when you pay their ransom. So you're rewarding bad behavior. We don't do that in Ohio. We don't settle these activist lawsuits. We, We fight them because the rhetorical question that I have for these groups that file these lawsuits in September or October is where were you six months ago when you could have brought this idea to the state legislature, vetted it through both chambers and, and public hearings and all of that? Well, you know, in many cases, that was never their intention. They know that these bad ideas like putting drop boxes on every street corner or uh, stopping the, the the safeguard of checking signatures. Th- those are two of the things that I was sued to try to do in 2020. We didn't fall for it. We fought those because those are what the law says in the state of Ohio. And my job is to carry out that law. If you had to recommend one successful practice in Ohio to current state legislators in other states to ensure their voters have a secure voting experience, what would it be? Oh, there's so many. But, you know, it starts with this. I, I testified in the Pennsylvania State Senate uh, last year. Because they recognized that when the whole world was watching, they didn't do a a great job. And so their neighbors to the west uh, over there in Ohio, we kind of had our act together and they didn't. So they asked me to testify. And I I made seven recommendations to them. And it was everything from, uh, you know, preparing your absentee ballots so that you can scan them all and count them on election night. So you're not counting ballots for days leading up, uh, days after the election. Uh, It's things like, you know, the voterless maintenance practices that we have in place. But the most fundamental thing is bipartisan oversight. In Ohio, there are both Republicans and Democrats overseeing every part of the elections process. In many states, if you're the elected county clerk, you run elections in that county. So if the county clerk's a Republican, everybody at the elections office is a Republican. If the county clerk's a Democrat, everybody there's a Democrat. And even if all of those people are you know, loyal public servants just doing their level best, it creates at least a sense that one party or another could, could try to unfairly influence the process. In Ohio, everything's strictly bipartisan. Even the building is bipartisan. If you go to a board of elections in Ohio, there's two locks on every door. There's a Republican key and a Democratic key that it takes to even get into the room where the voting machines are stored or where the tabulation equipment is. It's like uh, those old submarine movies from the 80s where it takes two keys to launch the torpedo so nobody can do it by themselves. That bipartisan oversight is just so much a part of the culture of the way we do things in Ohio, and it's not that way in every state. Other states should look at this. And some of these are things that Ohio's learned from 20 years in the national spotlight. We've had the world watching for a long time as Ohio conducts elections. And as a result of that, we've gotten good at what we do. Is there a person that has had a tremendous impact on your career? If so, who and what was their impact? Gosh, it's my mentor, my hero. Um, A man named Bill Miller was the leader of my Boy Scout troop. And so as a kid, he had such an impact on me. Well, We laid him to rest last year at 98 years old. He was a World War II veteran, and he liberated a concentration camp as a young infantry officer. As a kid, sitting around the campfire at Boy Scout camp, I got to hear stories about 
being part of the Normandy invasion, liberating a concentration camp, but also his stories of servant leadership. He told the story of when his soldiers in the the march across Europe to defeat the most evil uh, foe that that, that uh, the world has ever seen, working to get new socks and boots for his soldiers because they were starting to develop trench foot. He talked about sitting them down and like massaging their feet to try to get the blood back into them and to help them be ready for the battle that comes ahead. That's servant leadership. It's such a humble way uh, that, that he demonstrated for me what leadership means. And again, leadership is about serving others, not being served. And that's something that um, I'll never forget. And, and and his sort of quiet, confident leadership is something I always hope to, to model uh, because, you know, Bill was one of those people that, that knew how to take a team of people and get them to accomplish more together than they could by themselves. And that really is what is at the heart of leadership. What do you think has been your greatest achievement serving as Secretary of State in Ohio? It has to be the 2020 election. It's never been harder to run elections in our state's 200-plus years of history than it was in 2020. I mean, if you think about all the things that were working against us, this you know once-a-century global pandemic that nobody really knew how to deal with, and, and things were moving fast and changing— but also a really difficult political environment where everything that happened in elections, unfortunately, was being politicized by the outside world, not by us. We, we viewed it as we got to follow the rules and run fair elections and let the people have their voices heard. Um, all of those things that we faced in 2020 um, put us at a really difficult position. Even think of this. We normally rely on uh, a huge number of senior citizens to be poll workers. It's just, it's 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 often the case that they have the time and, and the interest. And, and so uh, of the 50,000 poll workers that it takes to run election day, historically, a large portion of those have been senior Ohioans. And, and these are people that because of their age were being told by their doctor, hey, don't be out in public. And so, uh, you know, everything about elections administration was harder in 2020, but we approached it in a very sort of systematic and, and focused way. It's like this. When a group of Green Berets, what I serve as a Green Beret and, and I'm a reservist right now, but uh, had served on, on active duty. When we plan a mission, it's not like you see in a movie where it's some montage of just like grabbing guns and jumping in trucks and going. And it, 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 that's not how it works. Mission planning for a special forces team is hours and hours at the dry erase board. I mean, it is thinking of everything that could go wrong, right? Everything that could go to crap. And how do you keep that from happening? It helicopter breaks down, radios don't work, the bomb sniffing dog breaks a leg, whatever the thing might be, you've got a plan for that and then put in place a plan B. And that's kind of how we approached the 2020 election. We, we called it the Ready for November Task Force. And we met on a weekly basis. We brought in subject matter experts from around the state and around the country, and we mitigated each of the major concerns that, that we had. And as a result of that, Ohio had what can only be called the most successful election in our state's history. I mean, if you just look at the numbers, you can quantify this. We had the largest turnout we've ever had. We had the largest turnout for absentee and for for uh, early voting and, and for uh, you know election day voting. Overall, the biggest turnout. We had the highest number of poll workers we've ever had. We had the lowest number of provisional ballots. Uh, we had also the lowest number of ballots rejected for a voter mistake just because we were you know, thoughtful about the process. So each of these metrics that you look at, this sort of wonky in the weeds stuff about elections administration on every metric, Ohio knocked it out of the park in 2020 and had a result that Ohioans can be confident in. We went to bed on election night. Ohioans went to bed on election night 
knowing the result and believing and knowing that it was an honest result. And that uh, is mission success as far as I'm concerned. Secretary LaRose, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And now, with no further ado, the fourth and final part of former Speaker Newt Gingrich's An American Majority, Not a Republican Majority. The opportunity before us this year is huge to pick up a Republican majority in the House. Let's listen to Newt talk about the opportunity we have and what the future may hold in creating an America that actually works. I wanted to share these ideas about an American majority, not a Republican majority, because I'm convinced that the radicalism of the big government socialist woke politicians and their performance failures create a unique opportunity to propose a dramatically different future based on very different principles and focused on unifying all the American people who reject leftism and are fed up with the performance failures. There is a chance to restore the America that works by replacing the big government socialist woke world that fails. Moving forward to a new renaissance of a successful working America requires winning both the performance argument and the policy values argument. The importance of winning the much more complex philosophical ideas fight, as well as the simple, straightforward, failed performance argument, is captured in Claire Berlinski's invaluable book, There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. Berlinski describes how Prime Minister Thatcher set out from her very first days as opposition leader, to destroy the moral legitimacy and performance promise of socialism. She did such an effective job of discrediting socialism as a moral force that no openly left-wing leader has been elected prime minister of Great Britain in 40 years. It was during this period of intellectual and moral hammer blows against the left that Prime Minister Thatcher said, quote, first you win the argument then you win the vote. Prime Minister Thatcher is as important a leader as President Reagan for those who want to understand how to win cultural arguments and move a nation from a big government socialist woke policy to a much more conservative, work-oriented, historically based policy of seeing a better future through free enterprise and entrepreneurship. Before Thatcher, the conservative party had been dominated by elitists who were used to accepting the core attitudes of socialism and operating within a framework of a little less than the Labour Party, but nothing too bold. Thatcher had come from a solid, middle-class background and grew up with Winston Churchill as her hero. She saw herself fighting to save Britain from the moral and economic decay of socialism fully as much as Churchill had fought to save Britain from Hitler. Thatcher had the toughness and firmness of a wartime leader. For a woman to have these characteristics in politics in 1975 Britain was astounding. For her to be this tough and determined personally was also astounding. She once pulled Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty, a 793-page classic work on freedom, out of her purse and slammed it on the podium and said, this is our platform, this is what we are fighting for. And she won, and candidly, I've always wondered how big that purse must have been. Her greatest achievement may have been Tony Blair's development of new labor, built around Thatcherite principles. Paul Johnson called Blair Thatcher's adopted son. Her fight against the very principles of socialism was so decisive that no openly left-wing leader has successfully been elected prime minister in four decades. Like Prime Minister Thatcher, 
we have an opportunity in 2022, 2024, and 2026 to win both the performance argument and the policy values argument. If the American people conclude that the Biden-Harris-Schumer-Pelosi team has failed on performance only, they might be comfortable replacing them in a few years with other equally big government socialist woke leaders. However, if in the Thatcher tradition, the American people conclude that the very policies, beliefs, and values are the ultimate cause of the failure, then they will be reluctant to return them to power for decades and possibly even generations. Look at how long Republicans remained a minority in the Rooseveltian Revolution after 1932, really only beginning to achieve parity under Reagan, himself a former FDR Democrat, after nearly 50 years. It is impossible to win victories on this scale focused on trying to create a Republican majority. There are millions of Americans who are deeply and increasingly unhappy with the current system, but they are not ready to become Republicans. Just as the Reagan Democrats became a halfway step for conservative Democrats who then gradually transitioned to Republican, there has to be an American focus to make it as easy as possible for people to be allied without having to repudiate their own identity. Consider some of the massive American majorities that could decide to support a movement that focuses on a better life for all Americans. We have a great amount of this data at AmericanMajorityProject.com, available to everyone, but here are a few examples. In every one of these examples, the majority is much larger than the Republican Party and usually includes a vast majority of independents and a significant minority of Democrats. These are truly American issues. By 59% to 16%, Americans favor free market capitalism over big government socialism. This particular question let people have no opinion if they wanted to. However, when undecided voters were asked the same question but had no place for no opinion, they chose 82% for free market capitalism to 18% for big government socialism. Again, the majorities are massive. 78% agree that the United States is the greatest country on earth, while 18% disagree. 84% believe the founding ideas of America are something worth fighting for. Only 9% disagree. 79% believe that people who believe in the values found in the Bible have the right to express them publicly. Only 12% disagree. 77% believe that canceling or blacklisting over opinions is wrong. Only 13% see it as helpful. 80% think big government and big business work together against small businesses. 74% believe big government and big business work together to harm individual citizens. 84% of voters believe that parents should be able to see all curriculum plans and materials for the classes their children take. This would mean that parents would have access to teacher lesson plans, book excerpts, and videos shown in class. 68% believe that public schools are lowering standards rather than expecting stronger performance from students. 75% of American adults agree that there are only two genders, male and female. That total, by the way, includes 63% who strongly agree. Only 18% disagree. Over 67% do not want teachers in kindergarten through third grade discussing gender identity with their students. 
By over two to one, Americans believe transgender athletes should compete on teams with their birth gender. Fewer than 10% of Americans want gender removed from a child's birth certificate. 63% agree that America can further develop natural gas and oil production without putting the environment at risk, but 28% disagree. 70% believe the drug cartels operating at the southern border should be designated as a terrorist group. 67% believe that the border should be secured and that illegal border crosses should be returned to their country of origin. 66% would support eliminating every government payment to illegal immigrants, while 22% disagree. 71% believe legal immigration is good for the United States. Just 15% disagree. At the same time, 73% believe illegal immigration is bad for the nation. Just 13% disagree. The way the government spends money is seen as wasteful, corrupt, and prioritized wrong. There was little partisan or ethnic difference in the perception of the amount of waste in government. Majority of Democrats, Independents, Republicans, African Americans, whites, and Hispanics all say that if government actually cut out wasteful spending and corruption, that it would be enough to balance the federal budget. 73% agree that the federal government is a special interest group that looks out primarily for its own interest. By 67 to 19, Americans believe limiting federal spending and balancing the budget will reduce inflation, with 74% of Hispanics offering the strongest support. 74% approve requiring able-bodied adults to work for taxpayer-funded benefits, such as food stamps, health care, or welfare, while 16% oppose. 59% believe people should be encouraged to work and be less dependent on the government, while 33% favor taking care of people, even if they may become dependent on government. Americans overwhelmingly, 91%, support equal treatment regardless of race when it comes to education, jobs, health care, and government services. Only 6% favor preferential treatment. The majority in favor of race neutrality is strong among every demographic, including 78% of African Americans, 89% of Hispanics, it includes 87% of Democrats, 89% of Independents, and 97% of Republicans. In fact, 91% agree with Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. that the content of our character should matter more than the color of our skin. Only 6% disagree. 87% support health care price transparency as a way to control cost and increase access to health care. 75% believe we should fix health care by putting patients and doctors in charge instead of insurance companies and big government. Americans are clear about the importance of honest elections. 85% support requiring all voters to show photo ID before casting a ballot. 80% support a requirement for states to remove from voter registration list people who have died or moved. 82% support requiring all ballots to be received by election day. The consistent scale of these majorities should be a roadmap for those who want to build a long-term, stable American majority rather than a smaller and short-lived Republican majority. Now, I went through this long list because I wanted to drive home the point. There are a tremendous number of issues on which good leadership could bring together three out of four or four out of five, in a couple cases, nine out of ten Americans. 
And it is the aggressiveness of the partisans. It is the nature of things like Twitter where people maximize being negative. And it is the structure of the left-wing media that makes us feel somehow that we can't come together. The truth is, with good leadership, overwhelmingly, Americans could find a path that they would like to. So I hope you'll decide as a citizen that working to create an American majority is what we should be doing. I hope as a citizen you'll tell your candidates and you'll tell the people you support that you want them to work to create an American majority. And I hope you'll share with others the whole concept that an American majority is possible, an American majority is necessary, and it can be done. Thanks for sharing all that great insight, Newt. For those who want to build a long-term, stable American majority rather than a smaller and shorter-lived Republican majority, then you should pick up a copy of Newt's latest book titled Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future. We'll see you on the next episode of the GoPack Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the GoPack Podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at GoPack.org.